You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we got some hats we need to get in the mail this week. Yeah, how about that? Mysterious hats. Just well, show up. Hats, hats from a guy, a listener of the show who works for Reebok. Send us some hats. Send us a, what I would describe as a sheaf of hats. Huh. So we decided to give them away with a Pride FC trivia contest this week during the uh, Breakfast of Champions newsletter as a precursor to Friday night's Pride FC very special co-main event podcast drinking game special. So I want to understand some things, though, about the timeline, about how this kind of cause and effect works. Okay. Because first... I complained about you not having a microwave. Somebody mails us a microwave. Yep. That you then don't even think to plug in for me when I come over, which is just in the basement. You could go down there and plug it in. It's ridiculous. Then we go ahead. We set up the Pride FC drinking challenge. Yep. And somebody goes ahead and mails us some Pride FC hats. Everything you've said so far is factual. So I guess what I'm saying is when are we going to get smart about how we use this platform? Because if we can just talk about something and somebody will mail us that thing, it seems like microwave and hats are not the best use of that power. Well, maybe we should brainstorm uh, what we should be talking wistfully about. I was thinking maybe you and I do some kind of a solid gold chainsaw challenge. Oh, wait, you don't even have any solid gold chainsaws around here. More facts. You're just sitting over there saying all the facts. How do you live this way? Not a single solid gold chainsaw. You know what I was surprised by? Uh, I guess not surprised, but impressed how quickly the co-main event podcast universe got after these hats. They came for these hats with pitchforks and torches. These hats were gone in mere moments. Well, and I like how some people, in their responses to the questions, there was even a little bit of like discrepancies. We had to make sure that we were going by the letter of the rules in here because that's how fierce the competition was for the hats. Yeah, one person uh, disqualified himself from that question by answer the one about how many name all the Gracies that Sakuraba beat in Pride. In Pride, somebody mistakenly added a uh, Halleck Gracie, who actually fought Sakuraba in Dream, right? Yeah, and beat him. So it's a shame. It's tricky, man. Well, it's not easy. You can't just, like, keep your eyes closed, win a hat. you got to be Johnny on the spot, whatever that means. That's right. And there were not that many hats. How are we doing on the uh, live streaming, Ben, for this Friday's very special Pride FC coming event podcast drinking game special? You know, I've looked into some different live streaming options. Uh, I'm going to test run a couple this week. People are going to want to keep their eyes glued on the Patreon and then uh, to both of our Twitters and, of course, the Breakfast of Champions. And we'll let you know exactly how we're going to do the live streaming uh, because there are a wealth of live streaming options out there. One problem that we're going to have to confront, however, is Ben's basement Wi-Fi because we're going to be sitting there in my basement recording this thing. And you've been down there. 
the, the Wi-Fi down there is not the best. It's we, you, well, it's we don't have unlimited time here, man. Like, this thing goes down in a few days. This is on Friday. I'm aware. Thank you. I'm aware. God, we're going to screw this up, aren't we? Well, yeah, we're going to screw it up, but it's going to be fun. Okay. No, it's going to be fine. I mean, the stream will crash at some point. I'm just... I know how streams work. I've been on the internet, so I, I'm I'm fully prepared for that. I believe you have also told people that when the stream crashes, we don't want to hear any shit about it. I know I don't want to hear any shit about it. Well, we, we and we also know that we will hear shit about it because that is also how the internet works. You can't just say you don't want to hear shit about something and then that be the end of the discussion. But regardless, we're going to live stream it. We're also going to make sure that it's archived for people who either can't or won't or attempt to, but then fail to follow along in the live streaming process. Uh, and we're going to roll out the, the rules this week. So everybody, everybody's going to want to spend this, uh, the better part of this week getting mentally prepared for what's about to happen in the drinking contest. You're also going to want to drink a lot of water beforehand. This You're is, really going to want to hydrate. This is starting to sound more and more like I've got something else to do that night. Listen, man. Can I send a proxy? Listen, we both know you don't have anything else to do. Could I send Sir Nigel as my proxy? I have it on good authority that Sir Nigel will also be in attendance. Oh, breaking news. That's right. Listen, you're not going to have a drinking challenge and not have a theatricalist. Also, uh, he heard that we were doing it, and then I couldn't I couldn't talk my way out of it. He's showing up. So I guess I'm going to have to find a different proxy. Listen, you're going to be there, and it's going to be terrible for you. And we all expect a follow-up morning-after report from the depths of Chad Dundas's terrible hangover, because that's going to be my favorite part. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Hey, did you know that Fulton & Rourke's new 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash is already the company's fastest-selling grooming product ever? Why, you might ask? Is, uh, is it because it's really good shampoo and really good body wash? That's exactly right, Ben. It's a really good shampoo and it's really good body wash. It's so good, in fact, that Men's Health Magazine's John Lonsdale recently wrote a piece about the best new grooming products out these days. The shampoo and body wash made the list, and in his write-up about it, Lonsdale said he couldn't figure out why it seemed to be disappearing so quickly in his shower until he realized his girlfriend had secretly started using it, too, because it was her new favorite as well. The shampoo and body wash is truly all things to all people. And another thing, we've given you all kinds of recommendations about how great Fulton and Rourke's fragrances are and which ones you should try. But this week, Fulton and Rourke is encouraging you to figure it out yourself with their quick and easy quiz. Just answer a few questions about what kinds of fragrances you like, and they'll tell you which cologne you're sure to enjoy. Ben, how do they do that? It's easy, Chad. You just go to GroomBetter.com to take the quiz. And as always, if you find something you want to buy, you can use our exclusive promo code by entering CME for 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's GroomBetter.com to take the quiz. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out to find some more at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to it on. Uh, that stuff really does help us out. So uh, lend us a hand if you got a few minutes and write us a review. Ben, how are we doing on the uh, Patreon? Want to guess how many patrons we have? I have not looked in a while. So uh, 447. 447? I was going to say like 425. Well, you would be wrong. I would be way low. Tantalizingly close to 450. I feel like maybe 
there's got to be 500 people out there who want to get in on this drinking challenge. And then there are going to be roughly 500 people who severely regret getting in on this drinking challenge, but it's okay because it's an experience and we're all going to go through it together. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, shout out to Eve Edwards for being the first person to compare fighting Chris Cyborg to a gang initiation. You got to take the beat down, but afterward, you're in the club. So congrats to Giannis Kuniskaya, who will be posted up at the park watching for cops for the foreseeable future. Good looking out, Yana. And in round number two, a requiem for the old man. And in round number three, what's this? Another UFC event with a solid crop of young talent? What with T-City and Sean O'Malley and maybe Mackenzie Dern? How cautiously optimistic should we be about this trend? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me? Tips for the well-rounded fight fan and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Now, I know you, you got something you want to point out about this first emailer, right? That's right. First email this week comes to us from Zach Scuderi. Who I come to find out is actually a professional video game player. Plays a video game called League of Legends. And... Want to guess what his gamer name is? Ah, uh, Sneaky. Scuds94. Scud, the Scud Missile. Scud Missile94. Sneaky. Zach Sneaky Scuderi. That's a good nickname. I guess if you're a video game player, I guess it is. Now see... Also, uh, I must, I must draw a line here. People emailing us with the names of professional soccer players. Fine. I get it. Uh, even the real Wait, names of... You pro- get it? I... Because I still don't really get it. Even the real names of professional re- – in fact, especially the real names of professional wrestlers. Got to admit, that's kind of awesome. But professional video game players, really? Well, don't you believe that Zach Scuderi, sneaky Zach Scuderi, the Scud Missile, could uh, actually be emailing us? Because professional video game player, that's not – you're not really famous. Okay, I looked up his Twitter. First of all, he looks 12. Second of all – if he's a big CME fan, why doesn't he follow either one of us? Third of all, you want to guess how many followers this professional video game player has? 300,000. 520,000. Okay, so... It's uh, kind of just in all our faces. Yep, right there in our face. Yeah. Also, he's wearing a backpack in this profile. Of course he is. Or so, is he going to keep his uh, his thumb pads that I assume you got to wear if you're a professional video game player? Thumb pads. Yeah, is that where his power glove goes? Energy in the got to have his power glove in there. Yeah. Uh, a couple cell phones, one for uh, his family and one for his mistresses. Right? <laughs> nah, naturally. Anyway, the Scud Missile Zach Scuderi writes, During the prelims of UFC 222, Hector Lombard finally showed us how far is too far when it comes to bending the rules. Earning the first disqualification loss of the year by knocking down CB Dalloway significantly after the horn sounded. While Dalloway was earning this disqual- disqualification, the referee looked on, signaling the end of the round with a wave of a hand. My question is this, how much responsibility for Lombard's late, late punches on Lombard himself, and how much is on the referee for not physically stepping in between the two fighters when the horn sounded? I'm, I'll, I'll answer this one. 100% on Lombard, 0% on the referee. 0%, huh? Not at that moment, yeah, 0%. What do you yeah. got to do? You got to get a couple of those flags that they use to signal airplanes at the at the airport. Jump in the middle of them guys and could, wave those flags. You could do this thing with your arm. You see what I'm doing right now? How I'm putting my arm in between the two of us? Well, he did kind of do that, but like, like how much uh, how much responsibility is the ref supposed to be able to give the fighters to like not cheat their asses off and punch CB Dalloway right in his face 
significantly after the horn has sounded. Two punches. Two-punch combo. Two-piece. Okay. Okay. After the horn. Yeah. Not even close. First of all, uh, wow, a pra- practitioner of Dundasso goes out there and gets to qual- You don't even stand okay. behind nope. your boy. No, no. You don't even stand See, behind one of I your own. I saw people on the internet making this same mistake, <laughs> mischaracterizing the art of Dundasso, the subtle art. Uh-huh. The point of Dundasso, Ben, and everyone out there listening on the internet, is you cheat and you don't get caught. You <laughs> cheat to win the fight. That's the, the core premise of Dundasso. If you cheat and you get your ass DQ'd because you punched the Connecticut blue blood, Clarence Byron Dalloway, in his face two seconds after the horn sounded, okay. that's not subtle. So then, That's not winning the fight. That's getting disqualified. When Jermaine Dur- Durandamy did the same thing twice in one fight to Holly Holm and did not get disqualified. Right. She won. She won the fight. So that was a good use of Dundasso doing the exact same thing? Yeah, she won the fight. She carried around the women's 145-pound strap for a while. Yeah, well, well, I was a, like, till she got to take like it three away. weeks or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, the thing I'll say about this is the one thing that gives me a little bit of sympathy for Hector Lombard is it's clear, like, you go back a few seconds before this exchange, and there's an almost identical exchange where CB Dalloway kicks him to the body and Lombard fires off that two punch combination. It's pretty clear that this is something he has drilled. Like, this is a response to Dalloway's kicking game that he has prepared himself for. And so it's like, Pressing a button on him. You get kicked, he fires back. And the kick lands kind of right at the horn. And it seems like by that point, for Hector Lombard at least, the button's already been pushed. He's firing back that two-punch combination the minute he feels like that kick coming on. So I do have a little bit of sympathy for him in that regard. Also, if he hadn't completely rocked the shit out of CB Dalloway, this would have been a classic use of Dundas. If he had just wobbled him a little bit, if he hadn't dropped him, if you just, you know, hit him and hurt him a little bit, but not exactly concussed the guy, you know this fight would have gone up. The only thing that made this stop and turn into a disqualification was that just the circumstances made it so that there was no other option. Everybody could see Dalloway was not right after that. He couldn't get up right away. He keeps asking what happened. The referee can't, what else can he do? He can't give a TKO to Hector Lombard when we all saw him land a punch after the horn. It's like the only way you can get a disqualification pretty much in this sport is you just have to have all these things line up to force everybody's hand. So what you're telling me is that 40-year-old Hector Lombard, veteran of some 46 professional mixed martial arts fights, powerless over his own body. I mean, you know, I'm if my dog, if a small dog ran up to Hector Lombard and jumped up and put his paws on his leg, Hector Lombard would punch that dog square in its face. Well, that's a I'm glad we went right to just animal cruelty from the point I was making. But the, the question is, how much of the, the blame is on Lombard himself? 100%. Uh, I say less than 100%, but also not 0%. I mean, you're right that he – but I also do have some sympathy for the fact that a guy who is watching MMA and trying to figure out how the rules are applied would basically have no way to expect that you could get disqualified for something like that because it just never happens. Hey, so you're also making the point, like, if you're going to do that, maybe just don't hit CB Dalloway quite as hard. Exactly. Just hit him, but, like, don't knock him you out. You take a little bit off of that punch, and it's a great move. It really helps you in the fight. And maybe you win this one legitimately. Let me blow your mind with something here, Ben. You, I, you have seen The Usual Suspects. Of course I have. The last scene in The Usual Suspects when Kevin Spacey is, is walking away from his interrogation, and he loses the limp, and he starts walking 
with purpose and we realize, oh my God, yeah. this guy is Kaiser Sose. That's right. What if the person applying the Dundasso here was C.B. Dalloway? <laughs> well, this one does C.B. Dalloway no real favors other well, than the win bonus. The win. He did get the win. I'm right. just saying, like, it looked like C.B. Dalloway got legitimately rocked, and I don't want to make light of that. But when they're pushing him out on the stretcher, yeah. and he's still like, what happened, man? Fuck, what happened? At that point, I was like, is he pulling a pulling a Kaiser Sose here? <laughs> What's going on? Okay, here, imagine this scenario, though. You're C.B. Dalloway. You're in this fight. Lombard nails you after the bell, and nails you pretty good to where, like, you're you're woozy, you're rocked a little bit, and maybe you have enough mental faculties together still to realize you probably could continue, but you're not going to continue at 100% after that. You took a pretty good shot there, and you're not going to be fully recovered after the round. Is it then the smart move to play it up a little bit rather than let somebody use Dundasso against you. Let the, because one of the things that makes Dundasso work, as we've talked about in the past, is that the pressure all goes on the person right. who is fouled. Like right. if you get kicked in the groin, you the pressure. You immediately get shamed. Yes. If you've been kicked in the nuts. You're, you're, the pressure is on you to not even use your full allotted five minutes. Right. Same thing, you get poked in the eye. Like the other guy can walk around like shrugging and like mugging for the crowd. Like, oh, hey, I'm sorry. I, I I, it's not my fault that we're having this delay. It's this other guy, you know, you know, being a baby about it, getting kicked in the balls. And the the reason it works so effectively is because everybody else allows themselves to be baited by that, like pulled back into the fight, and we just move on past it. And if somebody else kind of finally realizes, you know what, I'm not going to let myself do that, like, do you think less of C.B. Dalloway for that? Is he just being a smart fighter at that point? I mean, I don't think less of him for it, and really it did legitimately look like he just got rocked uh, and probably couldn't have continued. And, and I think on the broadcast they made the the very real and good point that once they had um, extended the the break out beyond the minute between rounds and, you know, opened the cage door and everybody and their mom came in there to check on uh, the Connecticut Blue Blood, that they couldn't really restart the fight again. Uh, but I've always said all along, Ben, were I a professional mixed martial arts fighter, you kick me once in the groin, I'm I'm walking straight for the cage door. I'm not even <laughs> taking any time to recover. I'm just out. And I'm stopping by the cage side table to see if Dana White will write me my check for my win bonus right then. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, it does seem like already you could see people being like, oh, CB Dalloway played it up, whatever he wanted out of that fight. Um, which I don't, again, that one always seems like people putting how they would feel in the fight onto, like they're projecting that their feelings right. onto a pro fighter. Everybody watching at home would be like, yeah, I want to keep going. I'd like to fight Hector Lombard for longer, please. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you really, there's a reason why there's not that many people who will get in there and do that. Everyone at home on their couch watching mixed martial arts, just a stone cold badass. Next question this week from Neil in Northern Ireland. He writes, nice to see Dundasso alive and well in the Arlovsky versus Struve fight. And once again, absolutely nothing is done by it. With even the UFC commentators noticing and saying they should just take a point for all fouls to stop them from happening. Do you guys think that that's a good idea or what else can be done to stop this? Now, Ben, here it is. Here's the Dundasso, despite the fact Stefan Struve ended up on the wrong end of this decision here. He's out there working it. He's grabbing the fence. He's poking the eyes. He's doing everything he can. He's doing it all right. He still loses the decision, but just want to make the uh, the distinction between what the skyscraper is doing 
and what Hector Lombard is doing. And you're you're saying you're for what the skyscraper is doing and against what Hector Lombard is doing. I'm saying that Hector Lombard or Stefan Struve is at least applying the principles in a smart way. Okay. But from another sense, it's way more understandable what Hector Lombard did. You drill this combination in response to a kick, you get kicked, you throw the combination back, and you're you're a couple seconds past the horn and your whole night gets ruined. Whereas Stefan Struve is making a conscious decision. Hold on, let me grab the fence here. Oh, is that Andre Olovsky's face? Let me just stick one of these big paws in his eye. Like, that's a way more willful example of breaking the rules. It's just, like, so accepted for us that because we see it all the time that... And you you have a much better idea of what to expect when you do something like that as a fighter. Well, yeah, and what you can expect is for nothing to happen. Yes, uh, and a stern warning, perhaps. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this fight is because not only, as Neil in Northern Ireland points out here, are uh, Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier on commentary during this fight having a frank discussion about how what you ought to do is just take a point everyone com- every time someone commits a foul, which... Frankly, I think that they made the point, and I think they're right, would clean up a lot of this stuff immediately unless you are unstoppable killing machine, Hector Lombard, who has no control over your own body at the end of a round of mixed martial arts. Uh, but, like, we get into this thing now where we are trying to make a distinction about a soft or a hard warning from uh, yes. Herb Dean. Did you catch this? Yeah, that. that, like, when Struve grabs the cage, he gets a soft warning, but then when he pokes Arlovsky in the eye, I think in the same round, I think moments later, he gets a hard warning from Herb Dean. And that, again, just reinforces the point, like, what are we even doing in this sport with these rules? Why can't you just simplify the thing and say, you really obviously grab the fence? I'm taking a point. You poke the guy in the eye? I'm taking a point. The, the fence grab one is the one that highlights the problem for me more than the eye pokes. Because even while the eye pokes is like a bigger... Health risks, definitely, and like a more serious issue because you can really seriously – we've seen people get like their eyes really messed up from eye pokes. But you can at least kind of see how that one happens. Like uh, the way you know, you're trying to create the distance and you have your hand open and it, it pokes somebody in the eye. I mean anybody with toddlers can see how easily you can get poked in the eye and can also uh, sympathize with kind of how awful it is to get poked in the eye. But the fence grab, there's no way to accidentally grab the fence. That just doesn't happen. You know what you're doing when you're doing that. And you're trying to keep yourself from being put in a position that you don't want to be in by grabbing the fence. That one to me, like, either we decide that you can grab the fence in MMA, which I think is going to get kind of ridiculous. Like, the visuals of it are going to be kind of absurd at a certain point. Or you ought to be able to punish that one just immediately. Because that is one where everybody knows the rules and there's no way to just, like, whoops, didn't mean to, but grab the fence. Yeah. No, and I agree with that. And and again, this sort of like uh, archetypal example is that if you're a guy who who stands a good chance of winning the fight by knockout, like Chuck Liddell, for example, or Jose Aldo. Uh, remember when Jose Aldo grabbed the fence against Chad Mendez? Yep, and then and stopped turned around immediately. And, and immediately him. wheeled on him and just shut his lights out. Like if you're a guy like that, and, and odds are that if you win the fight, you're going to win by stoppage, then you should absolutely hang onto the cage for dear life. If they, if you're not going to lose position out of it, because Cormier even points out in this fight that when Struve grabs the cage and uh, keeps Arlovsky from taking him down, uh, that he changes the complexion of that entire round. So if you're not going to suffer a, a penalty for it, you should absolutely do it. And even if you do lose a point and you're Jose Aldo and you're still, you still think you have a pretty good chance to win the fight by knockout, I might argue you maybe should still do it. Because if you do knock Chad Mendez out moments later, 
if even if you had lost a point, it would still be meaningless, which right. is frankly a uh, a quirk in the scoring of this sport that I don't know that there's a great answer for how to fix. Okay, well then maybe that is also the answer to the other question people ask, which is like, hey, especially in a three round fight, taking a point away is huge, and taking a point away if we start doing it with more frequency, it's probably going to lead to a lot more draws. Unless taking a point away increases somebody's sense of urgency to go out there and win the fight. Then maybe does it result in more exciting fights? Well, maybe. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I wonder, and I don't know if this is a good idea or a terrible idea, but for stuff like a fence grab, do you move to like a college wrestling uh, solution where if you grab the fence, you lose the position, like you have to go down to the mat? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It just seems like you would de-incentivize grabbing the fence if you if you suffered some kind of uh, you know measurable actual penalty that that affected the fight. How about if you grab the fence, the other guy gets to poke your eye. He can choose between a groin kick and an eye poke. Okay. How about that. Next question this week comes from us from Alex Ma. Is that a is that a person of note or is that a real human? It might be a real human. He writes, with Bellator announcing Krokop versus Nelson, Musasi fighting for the middleweight title against Carvalho in addition to MVP and Phil Davis, as a Londoner, as a Londoner, I feel more excited to go to this card, for which I have bought tickets, than the UFC London that is coming up, for which I have not bought tickets. Is the UFC not respecting its fans in the UK? We had a similar situation last year. So, Ben, this one is hot off the presses. Bellator sent out the press release today that it is going to do Roy Nelson against Mirko Krokop, uh, which I have already said the winner of that certainly finds a way to get back into the Bellator tournament and win, right? Like there's there's almost no other outcome or that could happen. Or the winner of that ends up fighting a giant cup of noodles at Ryzen New Year's Eve. Either way, either way. Uh, and frankly, I think Alex Ma makes a great point here. Bellator is coming to uh, the UK, when is it, May? They're go going in May. Uh, and their card is kind of stacked. And then what we get from UFC Fight Night 127, which is next weekend, March 17th, you got Fabricio Verdum versus Alexander Volkov as the main event. Then you get some, uh, you get some local guys on this card, but there's really not a lot of high level, uh, either stars or relevant, like contenders on this thing that, that might get the hardcore mixed martial, mixed martial arts fan fired up. So I think the question is a legitimate one. What's going on with the UFC's international cards? And if you were, Ben, a Londoner, would you more, be more excited to go see Bellator or would you be more excited to go see the UFC? No, I, I agree here with Alex Ma. I'd be more excited to go see Bellator. And this, he's right that this happened, what, like last year where it was the same situation where you looked at side by side what they were bringing to their UK cards and you had to kind of admit, man, Bellator is coming a little harder in that market than the UFC is. And, like, is it a question of the UFC not respecting its fans in the UK? I mean, that might be part of it. It seemed like they, there maybe there were some other plans for the UFC's London fight card at first, couldn't make it happen, and then it just kind of settles for it. Well, hey, it's a UFC card, uh, and it's just a fight bass card kind of thing. And so, yeah, it seems like the UFC it has in its mind the different tiers of programming. You can clearly see which tier of programming it is giving you, whereas Bellator is actually trying in that market. Uh, w though it's so strange to me how Bellator will really put some effort into putting on a good live show when it goes uh, to the UK. And yet it seems like what you hear from people all the time is that, it, like, you know, overseas fight fans is how hard it is to see Bellator. Like, it seems like most of the time Bellator is just like a tape-delayed TV product for them, and they're, they're always complaining how they can't really see it. And yet, 
like how is that your strategy most of the time except right. for when you're there yeah. then you really pull out all the stops right, but i yeah. i would say though from what we can tell uh if you're like just from a live event perspective bellator they've really tried to put on a good exciting live product yeah. i think it would be worth it just being in the crowd for that right and like i think that's smart of bellator to sort of target these international events where maybe the ufc has has taken a step back for one reason reason or another whether or not it's you know budget related or just trying to focus on other areas uh you're not getting a lot of of anderson silva fighting in abu dhabi anymore from the ufc so it is smart of bellator uh maybe to try to hit those uh, international fight cards and especially the UK where it has some attractions under contract that I think play well there, like MVP, for example. Uh, but at the same time, you're right that the Achilles heel here. And after I tweeted about this Bellator fight earlier in the day, I already heard from some, from some people from London or England who said, yeah, this isn't even on television here. So like that is like a fairly significant, uh, drawback to that strategy, right? Like if you can only impress the people in the arena, but you're not on television, uh, in the United Kingdom. That is sort of a flaw in your yeah. strategy. Yeah. All right, let's do last question this week uh, from Evan Rabelais, who writes, so the UFC pay-per-view this weekend definitely existed, and I'm sure that the last two fights will be talked about at length during rounds one and two. Uh, so can we take a moment to once again appreciate the chemistry between Joseph Rogan and Lafayette, Louisiana's Mardi Gras King, Daniel Cormier? There's so much fun on the mic, and that banter about Adelaide Bird was genuinely hilarious. As a side note, how do you feel about the commentators, be, commentators being so open about judging slash refing controversies? I'm in favor, but would love to hear the discourse. I'm always in favor about of people actually talking about the things that we're all thinking about in right. this sport. As far as the interplay between Daniel Cormier and Joe Rogan, do you ever feel bad for John Attic in those situations? Because it feels like at times, like you're, like he's the, the designated driver. He's the straight man. Yeah. Yeah. Like they are having themselves a good time and it does like bring some fun and energy to the broadcast. But some of the time, the, the great time they're having is just the two of them giggling back and forth and John Anik trying to like keep control of the broadcast. Like we've seen it before when like that particular three man pairing where it seems like at times, uh, Rogan and Cormier can kind of dominate the conversation and John Anik doesn't get as much of a chance to actually do the play-by-play stuff. And then at times, like, they are just cracking each other up so much and it feels like John Anik has to be the guy, like, the this, this sober adult in the room to kind of try to get the broadcast back on track. Which I'm not saying necessarily as a criticism, but it right. is something you notice. Yeah, and I, I think that John Anik probably secretly loves it. You know, if you've hung around a little bit with, with John Anik or talked to him, uh, not on the air. He's a cool guy. He seems he is, to get yeah. it, like what what's going on. So I bet that he likes his role out there, uh, as kind of like the straight man, the suit wearing straight man, the play by play guy. And you'll notice, Ben, uh, with John Anik, he slips in his own stuff, like far more subtle, far more dry. But like Anik will will throw out a uh, a joke or a humor humorous aside, but he like almost deadpans it. Oh yeah, in a way where if you're not paying attention. It's going to slip totally underneath the radar. Yeah, no, I love, especially his, uh, false sense of importance that he'll attach to the ring girls. Like, oh, the, the great, uh, ring girls. And I, I'm always super into that. He was the one that, uh, introduced the topic of Adelaide Bird, which I will have more to say on, uh, perhaps in one of the segments that follows later on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It, it is, uh, fun to hear them. And there, at times though, I do get the sense like that, 
Rogan and Cormier are the guys who are insisting on stopping at Taco Bell on the way home. And John Anik is like, guys, please. He just wants to get to bed so yeah. he can get up early. I got a, I got a big day tomorrow. Start learning the pronunciation of all the names he needs to say on the next week's UFC. Do you ever feel like Cormier and Rogan are having too much fun? Because for the most part, uh, I've really enjoyed the banter between them. It seems like they've gelled quickly together. Uh, the three-man UFC booth, which gives it a different spin than you used to have uh, with Mike Goldberg and Rogan. Uh, and 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 the one of the things I like about it is that it feels like Rogan and Cormier are having a, a more off-the-cuff, enjoyable conversation about this sport, which I still hold, as I do, uh, as the philosophy of this podcast, that, like, this shit is supposed to be fun. Uh, and it feels like Rogan and, and Cormier are having fun with it and then they're enjoying it. There are uh, rare instances, but occasionally I feel like maybe they're having too much fun out there. Like sometimes uh, it, it like crosses whatever line between like a production, professional production and, and like uh, just goofing around. Yeah, I understand what you're saying there, but I guess my feeling is I would rather have that than the other end of the spectrum yeah. Yeah, I guess where it I doesn't seem like anybody's ever having any fun. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, one of the things – Doing the the series that we've been doing where we'll do like kind of this day in MMA history stuff and it causes me to go back through the archives a lot, which means I end up rewatching a lot of fights with Mike Goldberg and uh, Joe Rogan uh, on the call. I'll say this. Joe Rogan's having some more fun these days, it seems. And I'm having more fun listening to it. You, you want to gain an appreciation for, uh, you know, two guys who are passionate and knowledgeable about martial arts and sometimes, you know, just getting a little bit silly and cracking each other up when they're talking about the stuff, uh, or just getting too enthusiastic and, and talking over each other or, or over John Anik, go to the flip side and go back and watch some ones where Mike Goldberg is just like pulling a string on his back and spouting empty platitudes and stuff that he had clearly planned to say and didn't matter what the context was going to be or what was going on in the cage. He was just going to say this stuff no matter what, uh, while Joe Rogan just sits there quietly and prays for death. Like, I'll take this one over that. I appreciate Cormier's uh, enthusiasm, you know, and which I think is remarkable from a guy. A man who, must have enthusiasm. Who is the light heavyweight champion and is about to, to step up and fight for the heavyweight title. I really enjoy the fact that Cormier is clearly a fan also of the sport and is out there just having fun with it. That's one of the things that I like about it most. And legit lol when he said, come get Joe Rogan. <laughs> and they were talking about that labor. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or comment that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Heck, sometimes we even do a giveaway through the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. And sometimes there's almost no warning about the giveaway. So you got to already be subscribed. Even we don't know. Uh, the newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. It gives you an opportunity occasionally to win some free stuff. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Thank you. 
Ben, Chris Cyborg did the thing that everybody knew she was going to do at UFC 222 as, I believe, the heaviest favorite of all time in a UFC main event fight at, according to some odds makers, 20 to 1 against the newcomer, Yana Kunitskaya. Uh, Cyborg finishes this thing via TKO three minutes and 25 seconds into the first round. I don't know if you want to say that there were some dicey moments there, but Kunitskaya clearly came out of her corner uh, with a strategy. Part of that strategy was was blocking punches with her face. The other part of the strategy was uh, getting Cyborg into the clinch, maybe working in some takedowns, seeing how she would do on the ground. Uh, I, w- I guess we'll open this thing up with a general discussion about what exactly is going on with Chris Cyborg, her relationship with the UFC, the still sort of mythical women's featherweight division. Uh, but let's start here. Despite the fact that she gets the impressive TKO win you know, less than four minutes into the first round here. Slowly but surely, are we starting to see a strategy take hold uh, for how to neutralize Chris Cyborg at the very least and maybe try to put on a competitive fight with Chris Cyborg and in what we've seen in the last couple fights here? You're saying the strategy should be first, eat a hard right hand just as soon as the fight starts, and then shoot that low single like your James Tony or like your uh, Randy Couture taking down James Tony and then try to, to get into an advantageous position in the scramble after that. Well, Kunitskaya comes from the Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn camp, correct? And so this will be the second fight in a row that a fighter from that camp has taken on Chris Cyborg. The second time in a row they've lost to Chris Cyborg, obviously. But I'm just wondering if we're starting to see a blueprint being put together by these coaches that maybe are a little bit more familiar with what Cyborg does. Uh, because clearly Yana Kunitskaya went out there to to do something, to do like a, a specific thing that she had in mind. Uh, obviously, she gets stopped, but at the same time, uh, there were a few seconds there, not where you thought Chris Cyborg was about to lose, but in that three minutes and 25 seconds where it crossed my mind, okay, this is actually kind of interesting. We get to see Chris Cyborg uh, in realms and in ways that we're not totally used to seeing her all the time. Yeah, I mean, I thought Holly Holm's strategy was... I mean, more effective and at least not getting the shit beat out of you, even though it wasn't terribly offensive. Uh, Yana Kunitskaya's was a little more offensive. Uh, you remember Holly Holm, her strategy was to kind of, when Cyborg is coming on and getting that, that full head of steam moving forward, to shut it down with a clinch. But it was not really an offensive clinch. It was just kind of a holding and waiting and nullifying her clinch. Uh, Yana Kunitskaya's is a little bit more of a attacking kind of style grappling-wise. But then it seemed like she kind of lacked the physicality to really pull that off against Cyborg. Because Cyborg, it's not like she's a bad grappler herself, and she's just powerful and athletic, and you're just not going to be able to uh, just pull her out of her realm so easily and make it count. You've got to be able to at least do that over a long term or have somebody who their submission game is so dangerous that all they need is for you to make one mistake. And I don't think that Yana Kunitskaya really had that on her. Uh, I mean, to Yana Kunitskaya's credit, she was going for it out there. Like She was really trying against Chris Cyborg. She wasn't just trying to not get beat up or trying to make the fight last uh, or, or just trying to shut Cyborg's offense down. But then going for it against Cyborg is a good way to get punched in the face a whole bunch, as we saw. Uh, Yana Kunitskaya makes a reported $100,000 in this loss. Chris Cyborg makes $500,000 with no win bonus, according to the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Uh, Clearly, we have come to believe in this sport, have been taught in this sport, 
uh, that those fighters are going to get some extra monies in the back, uh, I assume in the form of a Halliburton fireproof suitcase that just gets left on a, a locker room bench somewhere. Uh, but what do you make of Eve Edwards' comments, Ben, that like fighting Chris Cyborg is sort of like a gang initi- initiation. Uh, you just have to like basically take the beating and now Yana Kunitskaya gets to be in the UFC and, and go back down to women's bantamweight. Accurate. Entirely accurate. So basically she made more money than she's used to and she gets now perhaps to have a UFC career in exchange for being the 20 to 1 underdog against a much larger and more dangerous person. Twenty to one was it really twenty to one? That's where we were. Well, okay, uh, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Probably the biggest payday she will make for one single fight in her. I mean, who knows? Anything can happen. But odds are that'll probably be the biggest single night payday she'll make. And like we've seen with other fighters, you come up from bantamweight, you take the fight against Chris Cyborg, and then we'll give you a real one after that against somebody that you actually have a chance of beating and in, in, in the weight class of your preference. But I don't know. I mean, if you were curious as to why Chris Cyborg, I know you talked about this before, about how she seemed really difficult in negotiations at times with the UFC, and then suddenly we needed somebody to step in here as a replacement, and three weeks' notice, Chris Cyborg's like, sure, I'll do it. Then you see she made half a million dollars to fight a heavy, heavy underdog up from another weight class, and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of people are going to say yes to that. That's a really good payday for a fight that is honestly not that tough for her. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what is going on now with Chris Cyborg and the UFC. We talked a little bit last week about, again, the fact that she steps in here on short notice, gets a great payday, fights a lopsided fight that we didn't expect her to get much competition from. Uh, it seems like that there has been a warming of sorts between Chris Cyborg and the UFC, as opposed to uh, their somewhat icy relationship in the past. Uh, it seems like this fight with Amanda Nunez is on the table as a thing that might actually happen. But what do you make, Ben, between the re- about the relationship between Chris Cyborg and the UFC? And are you tired of this yet where we just kind of go get a mercenary for Chris Cyborg to beat up? Uh, as we mentioned last week on the show, three of her last four opponents were making their first fights in the UFC. Uh, with, without a real substantive women's 145-pound division, it really does feel like they got to go fishing whenever they need an opponent for Chris Cyborg. Uh, she's going to turn 33 years old this summer. Like, are you tired of this yet? Does this feel like we are getting to the point where we are at risk of kind of jettisoning Chris Cyborg's best years as a fighter on these essentially like one-off squash matches against whoever we can turn up to, to take the fight? Yeah, I, I for one, am tired of it at least just because it seems like a foregone conclusion. And it also seems like maybe the appeal is supposed to be that hey maybe we're not that opposed to seeing chris cyborg just beat the hell out of somebody like that's kind of the fun of chris cyborg is that she is like her her style makes it so that if you put put her up against somebody who can't really do much to her you know you're going to get a violent memorable finish right and I understand how that has been the, the promise and the, the sales pitch behind Chris Cyborg for years, but that gets a lot less interesting to me when it seems like you're just picking somebody, like you're just picking a body. You're, you're, we're not really having a fight anymore. We're not really having a contest. It's not really a title defense. You're just bringing in somebody like, all right, your turn to get beat up, and the only reason that that person is even going to accept the opportunity is because of all the stuff we talked about before. You know, that's why when you're talking about what to do next with her and the UFC seems to have already decided, you know, champ versus champ, 
I'm way more interested in the uh, Megan Anderson thing. I mean, she stepped up right afterwards and said, hey, how about like a fight against an actual featherweight now? I'm way more interested in that than I am in seeing Cyborg against another but different and more decorated bantamweight. Yeah, I mean, I think financially the move is the Nunez fight to do that right now just because that's that's kind of like the biggest thing you can promote Cyborg in right now. How many buys do you think that gets? I don't know. Uh, but over would, or under 300,000. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> the UFC I, cares. I think that the move is while you do that fight, I don't know that you can create a women's featherweight division out of thin air. I just don't know that you have as much or as enough talent to get that done. But like, if you're going to do Cyborg versus Amanda Nunez, I would also really like to see you do a number one contender fight at featherweight. So it doesn't feel like whoever is coming in to fight Cyborg next, assuming that she gets out of the Amanda Nunez fight unscathed uh it just doesn't feel like a uh like a, a a silhouette on the website you know it just doesn't feel like a a paid loser that you've brought in to to get shellacked by cyborg at least give me a number one contender fight between megan anderson and somebody else so that by the time we get chris cyborg versus megan anderson i'm like okay i know this person i saw her fight before so now we're gonna like have an actual legitimate women's featherweight title fight it's not you know, Yana Kunitskaya just coming over to, to make the payday and get to be a baby gangster in the UFC organization. True. But then when you say Anderson versus somebody else, would you just be doing that same thing with a number one contender well, fight? Well, you got to where... be able to find one other woman, right? If you can't <laughs> find one other 145-pounder, then what are we even doing? Well, we know what we're doing. We're watching the cyborg beat up a series of warm bodies. I mean, even if it was another bantamweight, like it would still feel somewhat more legitimate to me if you would just had Megan Anderson fight Yana Kuniskaya in a number one contender fight before you had cyborg fight Kuniskaya. Because right. at least then it's like we have a thing that's happening. True. Some kind of storyline, forward motion, linear. But that takes months. That takes months of planning. We needed something right now. True. We in needed this, something to, in f- this to plug instance, this we hole. we needed something right now. But now if we're going to do this champion versus champion thing, that gives the UFC some time to actually put together like some semblance of something happening in, True. in women's featherweight. And then maybe that will prove to be a good test for us to see if the UFC is ever planning to actually have a real division at women's featherweight. Um, because if you do have that lead time now and a little bit of space to think ahead – Either you're, you're deciding to think ahead or you're deciding that we're never going to do that. Maybe this is the, the crucial moment that tells us what the future looks like there. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, I don't want to kick Hector Lombard when he's down because we just talked about him uh, in the introduction period of the show. But I just I didn't hear this personally, but I saw people tweeting about it today. So I'm going to take their word for it that Hector Lombard went on MMA Junkie Radio today and said that he quit gambling after he gambled away his $45,000 Bellator signing bonus in one night. And as I said, I don't want to kick the guy when he's down, and I don't know that are you fucking kidding me is the right term to apply here, but the fact is that we don't have a segment on the podcast called Damn, Son. Uh, So I guess I'm going to (laughs) say, are you fucking kidding me? That's a bad break for Hector Lombard right there. Fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me, dude. Do we know how was it blackjack, craps? What are we talking about? I don't know. What do you think Hector Lombard's game would be? The ponies? <laughs> Maybe he's playing that uh, uh like the uh kind of animatronic horse racing game that they have at the casino. Oh, right. It's kinda of like slot <laughs> You think you drop you drop forty five grand yeah, on that? Just throw down forty five G's on that thing, hoping that, that number four horse wins every time. Oh, that is just so depressing to think about losing that much money one night gambling. Uh Chad my, are you fucking kidding me? We mentioned before, John Anik brought it up, that 
Judge Adelaide Byrd returned to the judging chair in Nevada for the first time since that very controversial scorecard uh, in the uh, Golovkin-Alvarez boxing match, I think back in September. Uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission didn't like officially suspend her or anything, but after that, and after she took a lot of heat for that scorecard, uh, she or Bob Bennett, the executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, said that she should take a breather. <laughs> that breather has lasted from September until now, basically. Now she finally returns. And I guess I'm just saying, are you fucking kidding me? Why? Why did you have someone where you were so concerned about their judging abilities in a combat sport? And mind you, you have to fuck up pretty bad for a athletic commission, especially the Nevada State Athletic Commission, to get concerned about you and your ability as a judge and say you just shouldn't do it for a while anymore. What was it? Why did you decide that she had to come back? Are we just that desperate for judges? You can't find anybody to sit there and score these fights? Because she scored three fights and was an outlier in two of them in different ways. That's not a whole lot of, that's not a big sample size. And already it seems like maybe it's just going to be the same questionable scorecards all over again. Are you fucking kidding me? We really, we have to go back to the well with the same people we're already very deeply concerned about? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Remember before this Frankie Edgar Brian Ortega bout, we were talking about how Brian Ortega has this uncanny ability to latch on to submissions from all over the place, even when you know to be watching out for it. But hey, Frankie Edgar is a guy who doesn't get submitted. Then, lo and behold, Frankie Edgar goes out there and gets knocked out by T City. Now, this one, it was an exciting, kind of unexpected finish. Also feels like a little bit of a bell tolling for your guy, Frankie Edgar. What are we to make of this? Is this a, a, a turning point? Frankie Edgar actually going out there and getting finished by somebody and finished with strikes, knocked off his feet at the end of this fight? Or is this just the kind of thing that can happen to anybody? Well, you make a good point. Like, clearly we're not used to seeing Frankie Edgar get done like this, right? This is his first stoppage loss in his career and his first loss, period, that's not in a championship fight. Uh, since his decision lost to Gray Maynard way back in April of 2008. So this was stunning in a way to see Brian Ortega stop Frankie Edgar and like knock him out cold in a way. Uh, and that step in elbow yeah. that Ortega landed was as pretty a counter as you will see in this sport from anybody. So and then when he lands, when he lands that uppercut, he's, he's landing a few uppercuts in there in close in the clinch and then seems to realize, okay, Frankie's not really with it and just reaches back to the back pocket and pulls one out. Like he realizes, okay, I have the, the time and the space and the opportunity to really load up on one and then just crushes it with it. That was brutal. It was. And so like, I, I agree that it raises questions about Frankie Edgar, who we all know is getting toward the, the latter stages of his career here. At least, uh, we guess that he is in terms of his age. We've never seen this done to him before. Uh, and so it is something of like a signpost moment in his career to see him lose by knockout in this way. At the same time, he didn't look terrible, uh, leading up to that moment. Like he looked like the, 
this, the same old Frankie Edgar kind of doing his Frankie Edgar thing uh, with one, I think, stylistic uh, exception that we can talk about in a second. Uh, so part of me thinks Brian Ortega lands that Stefan elbow on you. You're probably going to get finished whoever you are. Uh, but at the same time, like I do think that it that it might well signal a transition phase of Frankie Edgar to to like not being this guy who just gets every title shot opportunity, every number one contender opportunity uh, at 145 pounds. Uh, let's let's talk briefly about this since I just teased it, Ben. Like, how big a deal do you think that the that being wary of the Ortega submission game? Uh, how big a deal do you think that was in in what Edgar was able to do? Because do you think it made him one-dimensional to basically just have to go up there and kickbox since like that kind of rapid fire takedown that we you that we're used to seeing him sort of fire off in fights uh seemed like it was a thing he wanted to avoid. Yeah, I mean maybe that was on his mind, but then again you could just as easily say that he's watching that uh Cub Swanson T-City fight and noticing that Cub Swanson is able to kind of touch Brian Ortega up whenever he wants to it seems. It seemed like Brian Ortega was uh, not super slick on the feet, was very hittable. So I, I could understand how he might have been looking at that and thinking, okay, that's the way to beat that guy. Uh, you don't want to go out there and force a takedown because it gives him an opportunity, but uh, you don't need to shy away from the takedown. Maybe I can just stand there and beat this guy on the feet. Maybe I'm just faster than he is. I could definitely understand if that's what Frank Edgar thought going into this thing. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is how Frank Edgar loses this fight and the outpouring of support basically from other fighters, tells you something about how his peers feel about Frankie Edgar. But people aren't gloating over this one with Frankie Edgar taking this loss. Everybody, like especially Max Holloway's tweet, I thought on it was very telling like and very accurate too to say like, hey, he didn't have anything to gain taking this fight. You know, he was supposed to get his title shot. He doesn't get it. He's not going to get anything that he hadn't already put himself in a position for by taking this fight. And it's a risky fight. And he did it anyway. Uh, and yet it also seems like it was hard not to come away from this feeling like, all right, we have seen the kind of last reach, last grasp toward the title of Frank Edgar's career. But then, I don't know, I'm sure I felt that way before about Frank Edgar, and somehow he ends up back there at the top again. So uh, what do you think? Is this the closest Frank Edgar comes to a, another UFC title shot that we see a kind of door slamming on him at this point? Maybe. It's hard to uh, imagine him kind of going on being this guy at, at at least at 145 pounds, who's kind of like constantly in the mix. Uh, and then, you know, he's 36 years old. So it feels uh, disingenuous almost to like start a conversation about bantamweight. Right. Cause there was always talk about Frankie maybe being small enough that he could go down and make 135. And maybe he starts thinking that now, but like at 36 years old, coming off a knockout loss, two and two in his last four, in the UFC, like it feels like we're just having the same conversation that we have about everyone where we're like, maybe changing weight glasses is the magic fix for this person. So, uh, I don't know, man, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Let's, let's talk briefly about these tweets though, because you mentioned them uh, and they're kind of funny. I think at least to sort of like compare and contrast Max Holloway tweets. You had nothing to gain from taking that fight, Frankie Edgar, but you took it and you defended what you already earned. There's no belt for sacrificing everything, but true fans and Jersey knows no belt can outshine what you bring to the sport. Chin up, brother. Which is very much in keeping from what we know I, I, about Max Holloway. I believe that's pronounced chin up, brada. Okay, same, whatever. Uh, 
It's, it's an important distinction. Conor McGregor immediately replies to Max Holloway, kid, you bounced, leave it, which is an awesome Conor McGregor tweet. I don't have the Conor McGregor tweet that he sent to Frankie Edgar, but the Conor McGregor tweet was something like, it, he, deserved, that, he for... deserved that to be against me. Yes. Which he deserved to get knocked out by me, basically. I love it when everybody just does exactly what we expect him to do. Yep. Uh, everybody can't help but be themselves. I looked at that Conor McGregor in a tweet and I thought, is that nice? <laughs> is that meant to be a nice tweet? Not really. That's meant to be a tweet about Conor McGregor. It's meant to remind you that Conor McGregor had volunteered to jump in there and save this card and that he would have knocked Frank Yeager out if he had done that. It's, that is not a tweet about Frank Yeager. That is a tweet about Conor McGregor, which again, everybody being themselves out there on social media. I know we'll talk a little bit more about Brian Ortega in round three, but this fight did the thing that mixed martial arts, I find, so often does, where coming into this fight, it was supposed to be Frankie Edgar against Max Holloway. We were excited for that fight. Frankie Edgar was the favorite here, I think, and if we assumed that this was going to play out according to Chalk and he was going to win this fight, we would still be hyped for Frankie Edgar versus Max Holloway. Instead, we jet out of UFC 222 thinking... Oh my God, I can't wait for Max Holloway against Brian Ortega. Yeah, can't wait. That's going to be good. It's going to be awesome. And I don't know, like, I guess we'll talk about Brian Ortega in round number three. But it seems like he is evolving at a at a rapid rate. And again, like, I don't know if that is because maybe Frankie Edgar has lost a step or because Brian Ortega is kind of like putting everything together at a, at a breakneck pace. And it seems like Max Holloway is just the sort of uh, truth serum that will help us figure out the answer. All right, let's do tips for the well-rounded fight fan, Ben. Like, uh, want to try to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan more in 2018. We kind of got away from it. Is that a resolution of yours? We abandoned it in 2017, uh, mostly for life reasons. Yeah. And so we're going to try to bring it back in 2018. Ben, what is your tip for the well-rounded fight fan today? Well, I have I have to do this a little bit unconventionally. Okay. Because I have my real tip for the well-rounded fight fan. But then I have my, like a, a kind of sub tip for the well-rounded fight fan because I know not everybody's going to like this tip. It's not going to sound up everybody's alley. Okay, you're already apologizing for it. You I apologize. I haven't even said what it is. For not a single thing. My real tip for the well-rounded fight fan is a novel called Department of Speculation by Jenny Offill. Not exactly sure I'm saying her last name right, but it's O-F-F-I-L-L. Now, when I tell you what this novel is about, and if you're a listener of this Mixed Martial Arts podcast, you're probably going to think, that's not for me. I'm not into that. Uh, and yet, I would encourage you to question that assumption because it's just really, really good. Do you want them to challenge themselves? Sure. Would you like them to become slightly more rounded fight fans? Yeah. Okay. Let's see exactly how rounded we can become. So we're just almost too rounded. But it's basically just a novel about these two people's marriage, which sounds awful and like the kind of book I don't even want to read, but it's done so well and is such a smart, interesting, and quick, I want to stress this, quick read. You pick this thing up, you don't even really know what you're reading about or why you're reading it at first, but you don't put it down and like two hours later, you're done. Uh, it's really good that way. Everybody I've, I've recommended it to has said the same thing. They pick it up and they do not intend to finish it as quickly as they do. Really good. Department of Speculation by Jenny Offill. One of the best novels I've read in months. 
Now, if you brought a backup now, what's your backup? My backup. Make it quick, though. We don't have time for you to talk forever about your backup. If you're like, I'm not reading a goddamn fiction novel about two people's marriage. I like to be grounded in the real world. In that case, my friend, I recommend SPQR by Mary Beard. Okay. It's right there. A dense... It's right there in the bookcase yeah. behind you. Have, have you dug into that one yet? No, that's all my wife right there. Well, I mean, you look at it, it's huge. It's kind of daunting to pick up basically a history of ancient Rome uh, by like the foremost historian on the matter, Mary Beard, but it is awesome. And you'll read several things in there and you'll just have your mind fucking blown. I hope that Patrick Wyman doesn't sue us for gimmick infringement. Patrick Wyman put that book on one of his favorites from uh, last year, I believe. And for with good reason. I think that – because I've had it for a while, and that was the one that kind of convinced me to go back there and, and pick it up again. And it is really, really interesting. It's interesting that you said you weren't 100% sure about your tip for the well-rounded fight fan because I also feel like I'm going out slightly on a limb here. Uh, that's exciting. And that's because I am going to recommend a television series that just showed up on Netflix a few weeks ago called Babylon Berlin. That is a German show. So it's, it's got subtitles. You got to be okay with subtitles if you're going to watch it. But it is like a period crime drama about Berlin, Germany in the late 1920s. Uh, that in some ways is like a very, uh, memorable, like, stock crime drama you will recognize a lot of the uh, characters and traits on this show but at the same time it prevent it presents all this stuff uh in what is to me a totally new uh setting in G germany just as like hitler and the nazis are sort of uh on the rise in the wake of of world war one uh just sort of coming to power and it's also a super interesting show in that uh and this is a part that i think is going to make our audience feel like they don't want to watch it but it's awesome and they should give it a try. It's like kind of a grim crime drama that also occasionally focuses on the club scene in Berlin in the late 1920s. So like the dude who is the main character is an inspector, but he's also a hell of a dancer. Huh, so okay. sometimes like you'll be involved in this sort of like heavy crime drama and then they go out to the clubs and they listen to some like big band music and do the Lindy hop. So how about that? Yeah, it's kind of awesome. I don't know. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Babylon Berlin. I, I recommend it if you feel like you can handle the subtitles. That's going to do it for tips for the well-rounded fight fan. We will be right back with round number three. All right, Ben, we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about some of the young talent that we saw on display at UFC 222. So let's pick it up right where we left off with T-City, baby, Brian Ortega. Uh, how good is this kid? How high can he fly? And do you think that it's a situation where, as I said in the last round, Frankie Edgar had lost a step? Or is Brian Ortega one of these athletes that when we see him out there every time, he's got a bunch of new stuff he can do? You know, I got to admit, I did not see him having this quite in his game, in his arsenal. And it does kind of make you wonder if, because it seems like maybe we get used to it when you see guys who have been around forever, guys like Frankie Edgar, you know, where you feel like, all right, I know what he's got. He might polish up some of those techniques. He might focus some on or more on some than others, depending on what his game plan is. 
but Frank Edgar's not coming out there and like hitting you with a spinning wheel kick, basically. You know like what he has in his toolbox and what he doesn't. And then you remember with some fighters like Brian Ortega, who's you know 27, uh, that's his, I believe, 15, 15th pro fight, and you think, wait a minute, maybe we just too quickly latched onto one thing and said, okay, that's his thing, and did not allow for the possibility that he could just still get a lot better at other things, other aspects of the game, like he showed off here. Yeah, well, it's interesting because leading up to the Cub Swanson fight, uh, I watched, I went back and rewatched every Brian Ortega fight in the UFC because I had to write something about that fight. And I saw that his stand up, he's got really kind of effective stand up where he keeps it real tight and he doesn't throw a lot of, uh, looping punches. He's got like a lot of some really good straight punches. And at that height at 145 pounds, I think that can be real effective, but I didn't see hardly anything like what he put together against Frankie Edgar, uh, the step in elbow and then the, the, the winging uppercut that, that eventually knocked him out. So at least to me, and again, it's been a while since I rewatched those fights and maybe I just missed it, but, uh, this was a remarkable performance. I thought from Brian Ortega to finish Frankie Edgar on the feet in a way that nobody expected him to be able to do that. And it seems like every time out, he looks better and better as a fighter. You know, early on, we had latched onto this idea that he loses these rounds and then kind of, you know, grabs a submission late in the fight to pull out a fight that he otherwise was probably going to lose. Now he seems to be coming in more into his own in terms of being a well-rounded fighter. And with his attitude and with his personal story, which I think is also terrific, uh, it makes you wonder, like, what kind of potential star he could be for the UFC, whether or not he's got uh, that kind of charisma, that kind of mojo remains to be seen. But, like... There's a lot going on that I think that, that you can like with Brian Ortega. Well, and it does feel like if you come out of this and you got now Brian Ortega versus Max Holloway as your next UFC featherweight championship bout on deck, that feels more fresh and exciting, right? Like that does feel like a fight about the future. Whereas Max Holloway versus Frank Yedger, which I will would absolutely have watched happily on this event, like if it had stayed together, but it also it doesn't feel like quite as stepping into the new UFC age. And I think that Ortega versus Holloway, despite the fact that he's still out here slanging these tweets, and if he ever did decide to go back down to 145, they would obviously welcome him with open arms. But don't you feel like Ortega versus Holloway is kind of like a post-Conor McGregor featherweight championship fight? It's sort of like 145 pounds has moved on from Conor McGregor, I think, with that fight. Well, well, and like, uh, you know, as we were going to kind of talk about in this round, it seems like you've got a little bit of this going on at this event. Uh, and we've seen it, some, we've talked about before, like in some weight classes where it seems like, like welterweight, for example, where you turn around and you realize, hey, wait a minute, you have a bunch of new young talent. It seems like you can actually go somewhere with. And here you saw young talent spread out a little bit. You you had Brian Ortega beating Frank Yedger in the co-main event. You had, uh, just before that, Montana's own Sean O'Malley. A guy near and dear to the heart of the co-main event podcast. Yes, Right obviously. up the road in Helena, Montana. Yeah, he goes out there, and now he's he's training down there at the lab in Arizona where a lot of Montana guys have uh, made the trip down there, and that just has become a, a – they, they love John Crouch down there and not without reason. He's a, a great coach and a good guy, so they go down there, train with him. And then he shows out here after kind of making a name for himself at the Contender Series – and has a hell of a fun fight against uh, Andre Sukumthoff. Uh, and am I saying that right? Andre Sukumthoff. Okay, there yeah. you go. I mean, close enough. Yeah. Right? Uh, 
And that one, you know, you see in the first couple rounds the the range of his abilities, and then in the third round you see his toughness on display. Gets a little bit of an assist from his opponent's very sure poor did. fight IQ there. But, you know, it's a very memorable night for him. He ends the night with being announced the winner as he is laying on the mat, can't get up. Joe Rogan has to come over there, interview him while he's laying there, uh, and which he says it's nothing that's a medicine in his after party can't fix. Boom. Right there. A lot of people are going to have a reason to care about you the next time you fight again. And then uh, in the women's strawweight uh, prelim main event, the featured prelim, Mackenzie Dern goes out there. You know, not exactly a spectacular UFC debut, but she gets the win over Ashley Yoder. Are you excited about this this crop of young fighters? A little bit, yeah. And, like, I think it's clear we're we're on board with Sean O'Malley. Like, 100%. That dude is a fun fighter to watch. As you said, like, uh, very tough to kind of battle through that injury, uh, the injury that l- had him literally kind of screaming as soon as the fight ended, but he was out there finishing up the pretty much the whole third round with it. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Mackenzie Dern, since I don't know that there's a lot of uh, disagreement on Sean O'Malley. I think we're we're all in on that guy. Uh, Mackenzie Dern, obviously, uh, aside from the co-main event and main event of this pay-per-view, kind of the, the biggest... A uh, bit of hype leading into this pay-per-view was Mackenzie Dern's UFC debut at Women's Strawweight. Uh, clearly like a, a kind of like a BJ Penn style Brazilian jiu-jitsu prodigy. A person who was uh, a big deal on the grappling scene from the age of like 14 and won a world championship at every level, at every belt that she had. Most recently, like both a gi and no gi world champion uh, and a, an ADCC champion comes into the UFC after a pretty short independent uh, undefeated run on the independent circuit uh, and gets Ashley Yoder. And Yoder was the second biggest underdog on this card after Yana Kunitskaya. Uh, and Mackenzie Dern kind of puts on a an inconsistent performance, I would say. Like for the first uh, maybe like 14 minutes of this thing, it was kind of hard to justify the hype, I thought. Like, I think she, like Sean O'Malley, when things are clicking for Mackenzie Dern, she has kind of a fun style to watch, uh, but though it's far less technical. But then you get, like, the glimmer when she finally commits on a takedown and gets Ashley Yoder to the ground at the end of the third round. You see a glimmer of what she's capable of, where it's like, as soon as she gets her on the ground, she effortlessly takes the back. And if she had another 30, 45 seconds, she may well have finished the fight. What did you make of Mackenzie Dern uh, the like a uh, an all her all around performance here. Yeah, the first two and a half rounds were basically us watching the limitations of Mackenzie Dern, or like the holes in her game that still needs to be filled in. And then when she finally does get a single leg, and you think, oh yeah, that's it. That's why people were excited. Uh, where has that been? Let's see some more of that. And you're right. I think if she gets that takedown thirty seconds or a minute earlier into that round. She ends that fight there. I guess I wonder if she came away from that thinking, you know what, I need to be the specialist that I am or I need to round out these other skills. Because yeah. we've seen that, especially for jujitsu people, it seems to be this like is a tough balance to strike. Because remember when Demian Maya came into the UFC as a submission specialist and then was like, all right, I need to sharpen up my striking and then started to try to win fights that way. And ended up giving away a lot of fights and just not being a super fun guy to watch. And then is when he decided, you know what? I don't care if you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have confidence in my ability to do it to you anyway. That that's when he became like a real title contender again. And I think that that's 
maybe a, a similar thing that Mackenzie Dern will face. Uh, I also, though, wonder, you know, you come out of this one and you, you see like, okay, the UFC has some people here to promote, like young fighters who feel like they're new faces on the scene. Uh, what do you do with them now? Like, what do you just keep trying to pack them onto the undercard of pay-per-views that you think people might watch? Do you try to shove them out there on, you know, UFC on Fox cards or UFC fight night cards, try to get them more of the spotlight to themselves? What's the key to building a bridge to where these are people who we didn't just kind of like accidentally stumble on while we showed up to watch Cyborg, but that we're actually going to care about moving forward and we'll show up just to watch them? Honestly, the answer to that question in 2018 is I don't know. Because I don't know what the UFC is prepared to do to try to build new stars. I don't know what the UFC is capable of doing in 2018 to build new stars. But I definitely think there's an opportunity here. And it's like, it's an opportunity uh, that's kind of a mile wide when you think about it. There's so many athletes on this roster who are like Sean O'Malley and like Mackenzie Dern in their early 20s, uh, clearly talented, kind of ready to break out. But it also feels like they are all kind of lost in the shuffle because the UFC live event schedule is so unrelenting. So I think one of the big questions as we move forward uh, for the rest of this year and then on into 2019 will be what the UFC can do to leverage these super talented young kids that it has. Uh, and it's going to have to come up with some answers, I think, because, you know, like Max Holloway now fighting Brian Ortega for the featherweight title, we're sort of starting to see a changing of the guard in a lot of these weight classes where you're going to have young uh, maybe sort of unproven talents rising to the top. And you're going to have to, I guess, figure out through uh, attrition, which is lucky since we are covering a combat sport, like which ones are the best fighters. And then you're going to have to deliver their stories to the fans one way or another. And it, it, the weird part is that with, with all of the tools that it has at its disposal to do that, it kind of feels like the UFC totally hasn't figured that out how to do that yet, which is strange. Maybe the way to do it is uh, documentary crew follows around Sean O'Malley. We get a glimpse of how the medicine works for him. You see where I'm going with this? Next thing you know, Sean O'Malley uh, not only becomes a, an important star in mixed martial arts, but in the world of medical marijuana. See, now you're thinking. Yeah. Now you're just cross-marketing. Cross and looking like disco stew the entire time. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, for this week, Ben, this week, I'm just saying props to Conor McGregor for pulling off this Burger King ad in a way that I felt was not a not a total disaster. Oh, how if, kind of you. If you describe this thing to me, if you're like, yeah, man, Conor McGregor's on a plane wearing a cardboard crown and the Burger King is there. He's the Conor McGregor's wearing a red suit and he's got a chicken sandwich in one hand. I would be like, wow, that sounds terrible. And then you watch it and it's kind of like, you know what? Conor McGregor is, he's really good at this stuff. Like he's pretty good at uh, saying his lines and taking a bite of the, of the sandwich. We get a bleeped out swear word just cause it's Conor McGregor for good measure, which I think it brings a nice little, uh, homey feel for those of us who are used to, to, to his gimmick. Uh, so I guess I'm just saying good job on the Burger King ad, Conor McGregor, just kind of not making it a disaster. You're just saying good job by not sucking. Can you think of another? UFC star who could do this Burger King commercial and you wouldn't watch it and be like, wow, that's terrible. Imagine if they tried to do that with Chuck Liddell. Oh, yeah. Even Ronda Rousey Oh, well, on the plane yeah. with the chicken sandwich. You'd be like, well, this is terrible. 
Conor McGregor pulled it off. You know who'd kill it? I don't know if he qualifies quite as a star, but you know who I think is kind of criminally underutilized and stuff like that? Demetrius Johnson. He probably actually even in his small roles in like those uh, Metro PCS commercials or whatever. He he's pretty good at it. Yeah, no, I will give you Demetrius Johnson. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying we were just talking about Sean O'Malley's fight and his win over Andre Sukumthov, and I saw in the corner, and you noticed before, like heading in, I believe, into round three, uh, another Montanan, Tim Welch, mm-hmm. cheap shot Tim Welch out there, uh, and encouraging Sean O'Malley to, to talk to this motherfucker. Yeah, I believe he started it off by saying, dude, which is how you knew that there was a Montanan in the corner. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, kind of distinctive. You see the red hair and Tim Wells. People might remember him from the old uh, Fight Master series in, in Bellator. Uh, and I remember him from coming down to the gym here in Missoula when he was just like a, a teenager. And back then, where uh, I could grapple with him and still hang with him because he didn't know anything yet. And he turned into a hell of a fighter. Also down there at the MMA lab with John Crouch. Uh, and then, you know, and I was exchanging some Twitter DMs with Tim after the fight. And then I see the tweet from Andre Sukumtha, who. <laughs> Here's his tweet after after he loses uh, the decision to Sean O'Malley. I have nothing to say and nothing to explain. I lost the fight and I take it like a man. I must say, though, I have never competed against such a disrespectful slash unprofessional corner, literally talking shit to me during the whole 15-minute fight. I think it was just one guy, though. <laughs> so this week, I'm just saying, shout out to my boy, Tim Welch. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to look ahead to that UFC fight night event that's over there in London. As of right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So what I'm thinking here is we're going to get some some Japanese beers in there for the drinking challenge. Uh, you know, we... I, I don't... Is, is it, can we get our hands on some Brazilian beer? You know, not to let the cat out of the bag here, but I have reason to believe that a certain former... UFC fighter who works over at the MMA Junkie is sending us some beers in the mail. Is that right? That's what I hear. Should be arriving any time. Could it be a former UFC fighter who also now works in the beverage industry? Sounds like they're snowed in in, in uh, buildings. It will be. Well, here's that. <laughs>